0: This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to Soundbites, our weekly look at food, agriculture, and our future, here on the Mark Steiner Show. Produced out of your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and also broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. Today on the program, we're listening to the first part of a panel that I moderated earlier this week on the future of food in Baltimore, on the significant work being done in this city to rebuild the region's food system and looking about how we create a sustainable food system in a city of food deserts. We wrestled with what a community-based, democratized food system might look like. The conversation took place at the second annual Town Creek Foundation Stakeholder Meeting. The Town Creek Foundation is one of the funders of the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites, and they asked us to moderate their keynote panel. When I was asked to do this, one of the things I started thinking about, since it's kind of a keynote, is that when we talk about food, food movements in this country and food justice in this country and in our community, we think of farmers markets and we think of clean water, which is important, and we think of um, traditional farming and new farming rising. What does all that mean? But what gets left out of the conversations is what happens to issues of food and food justice, environmental justice in in, in urban centers like Baltimore City and other places around the state of Maryland. What gets left out of the conversation is why those voices are never heard and given the same credence in the larger political sphere Um, and why that's the problem and why that has to change and also one of the issues that we will talk about here is who ends up in the process here always who gets funded and who doesn't get funded and why Uh, and why do you grow food one reason is to sell to restaurants another reason is to feed people uh, and some people get frustrated with the system and decide, I've had enough. Who's going to do it? Um, but th- to do it yourself. So people are do it, do it yourself is where we are. And so we're going to wrestle with all this and the complexity of all that. And when I introduce the folks here, I want them to kind of introduce their work so they, so they, so they know what they're, so you, they can describe it themselves rather than me stumbling through what they do. But we have on this panel Reverend Dr. Heber Brown, who, I uh, just saw him, there he is. Um, and the Reverend Dr. Heber Brown is somebody who's been on my show many, many times um, and um, Heber Brown Heber, because we're friends, I can use that term <laughs> um, is, uh, has done remarkable work in this community he is uh, a minister of the Mount, uh, Mount Pleasant Baptist Church uh, in the east side of town he has created this church food network he, he founded Orido uh, Crossing Freedom School which is an ethical program that's blossoming now into something much bigger and when Frederick Gray was killed of uh, um, Heber Brown, along with others, was out in the streets every day, every night, protecting young people, protecting people, and making a stand and having his voice heard. So I don't think we could talk about this city and where we're going without a voice like Heber Brown's. And Heber, welcome, good to have you with us. And I want you to do Sasha Jones. Now, Sasha Jones has also been on my show many times. Um, she's the she- she listed as a food justice consultant producer uh, for the Park Heights Community Health Association, which she works for. But what Sasha has created with other people in Park Heights, those of you who don't know Baltimore, uh, Park Heights is a very long road. It goes down from the Armandauvin Shopping Center and, and, and Park Circle all the way out to uh, deep into the county. And there's a dividing line. It's called Northern Parkway. And Park Heights is a working-class neighborhood, a working-class black neighborhood. It's a food desert. And what Sasha and her folks around her have done is create a farm. Now, how many people here are part of CSAs? Lots. I figured that. (laughs) But the CSA that Sasha Jones has started is a CSA where people spend $10, $15 a month, whatever they can afford, and people are fed and learn about farming in the process. I'll let Sasha explain much more about that. It's kind of a very revolutionary way of approaching where we're going. And our, f- our final panelist is Kurt Summers. Come on, Kurt. Who's director of the Baltimore Integration Partnership. Um, and the, the work that Kurt's doing, uh, this is the, the, some of the back and forth we have to have here. Is This collaborative partnership, bringing all these different institutions and funders and nonprofits together uh, to, to create this economic inclusion. Um, and, and, and that is kind of critical to all of what we're talking about here, because exclusion has been the operating word. And so the inclusion is what we have to talk about. So what I want to do is I want to start just by very quickly going down, going down the uh, aisle here, the, the panel, and let people describe very quickly what their organizations are, what they do, so you get a sense of that, then we'll leap into the, the heart of the conversation. Reverend Dr. Heber Brown. Good afternoon, everyone.
1: Again, my name is Heber Brown. I'm blessed to be the pastor of Pleasant Hope Baptist Church uh, in, here in Baltimore. I'm also... Uh, the co-founder of the Black Church Food Security Network. The Black Church Food Security Network came into official existence uh, this year, in July. Uh, But the work of the network was moving uh, during the Baltimore uprising, and uh, its conception was uh, even before the uprising. I was blessed, and I am blessed. In fact, I'm a very wealthy man uh, because of the relationships I have with outstanding people uh, like Sasha next to me and so many others who uh, helped sensitize me to issues of not just food security but food sovereignty uh, and what that means and how that shows up in our communities Uh, and as a pastor I have enormous privilege and I have an institution that I try to um, um, to leverage to bring about progress in black communities that are struggling with any number of challenges And so last year, about December of last year, in fact, it was two days before the new year, I met with a brother named Dario Harris at the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future and met with him and met with Aaliyah Frazier of Black Dirt Farm on the Eastern Shore. And uh, we had lunch. We started dreaming together about what we can do to help address the issue of food insecurity in our communities. And we dreamed uh, in the midst of conversations we were having with Mark and Valerie and so many others uh, about what could be possible in terms of Um, closing the gap and really addressing the issue in a substantive way around food insecurity. We dreamed together and we said, yeah, we should create an alternative food system. And that was two days before 2015 rolled in. The idea uh, stayed in our minds. We continued to talk together, dream together. And then Freddie Gray is arrested and about a week later he dies and the city goes up. At that time, we started getting phone calls at our church from communities that were literally uh, struggling um, and starving, literally. Corner stores were impacted during the uprising. And when corner stores went out of commission, there was there were some entire neighborhoods that didn't have access to food. And so our church got phone calls, and people started donating food to our church. Uh, we repurposed our church and made it a food distribution center. Uh, we repurposed our church van and made it a food delivery truck. Um, and I was blessed to be able to drive food around the city to communities that needed food. We set up shop on corners all over uh, Baltimore, but mostly along North, North Avenue. Um, we did that for a couple of weeks. We had universities, uh, college students. We had African-American growers from Philly and D.C., and Aaliyah was really just amazing in terms of bringing those connections in in terms of farmers. And then I had the churches as distribution centers, and we realized after a couple of weeks of doing that in the midst of the uprising, that we had a system, at the fledgling, the, the, the blossoming of a system that was uh, before that point just an idea in our minds, but during the uprising became something that we didn't have any more time just to just think about. We had to do something. And so uh, the work got started, and then after things began to settle and stabilize, we decided to continue the work. And the Black Church Food Security Network now uh, works to pipeline fresh food directly to black churches in Baltimore City. Now, Leah Frazier is a wonderful sister and our partner from Black Dirt Farm. Uh, and She drives fresh produce uh, about an hour and a half uh, from Preston, Maryland to Baltimore City. Right now in our primary location, uh, in addition to my church, of course, another church that's um, a primary location is the Ark Church, 1200 block of East North Avenue, about two miles east of uh, Pennsylvania and North Avenue, where a lot of activity was going on during the uprising. We have other churches and pastors that are interested now in um, giving us their land and space to grow food or being distribution centers on the days where they actually worship or study together. Uh, So Sunday mornings or midweek Bible studies or the like, uh, we are poised to bring fresh food straight to the sanctuary. So after benediction, after prayer and praise, there's some fresh produce waiting in the lobby of the church. Um, That's at comparable prices to the local stores that people will get it from anyway. But the bonus here is, Uh, You're supporting a black farm on the eastern shore, you're strengthening a black institution in terms of black church, and you're providing for a real need in the black community. And so having people who are most directly affected by food insecurity come up with their own own solution to move the ball forward in a just way uh, is really exciting work to be a part of,
0: and I'm glad to be here. Thank you. And I want I'm going to apologize for saying Mount Pleasant instead of Pleasant Hope. I do that all the time. I don't know why I do that. But uh, maybe I'm still in Prince George's County, but I'm not. Um, Sasha Jones.
2: Uh, good morning or afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm Sasha. I work, in, I work for the Park Heights Community Health Alliance, um, and I'm the food justice consultant there, which is a really fancy or kitschy title for I get food to the people in my neighborhood. Um, in one of the ways that we do that in about three or four different ways at any given time. Uh, One is we grow the food, so we have a, which is now I think it's about two and a half acres I'm working on right now. Our first site um, was started in 2009 um, to really fulfill the nutrient needs um, in our community. So not only to just provide a garden um, that people could see the, the vegetables growing, but actually for them to participate in the growing process. Um, so we started the Growing Food Together CSA which uh, in its inception was really uh, you, you come, you work, you eat. Um, it has taken a few different phases since then. Um, we have a more traditional CSA now but it's still the same um, premise. So our CSA is based around a sweat equity model um, so if you, you still, if you work, you eat. Um, you There are different share sizes um, and so Everything that we do in terms of food is based on access. So not only financial access, but you know, time is also a resource that is not readily available a lot of the time. So we, um, we break it down so that the least commitment is two and a half hours a week. You get that, that's enough food for one person. Um, that's $20 a month. Um, and then you can do your hours concurrently with anyone you bring. So essentially you can stay for 30 minutes if you bring four people. <laughs> um, yeah, so we, uh, we split it down that way, particularly to reach the seniors, to meet, reach the middle age, the young family. So we have three share sizes in total. Um, the largest one is designed to feed a family of four for the vegetables that they'll need for that week. Um, and then we have a half share and we have a quarter share which a lot of our seniors come, um, come in. Uh, so that's one of the, the main prongs of our CSA, it's been very successful. Um so we you know you can pay but we do uh, offer sweat equity as a way to get vegetables out and right now it's about 50/50 between people that live in the immediate community um as well as folks that we call our supporters who come from outside of the community. Um and it's it's also broken up 50/50 between people who pay um and people who prefer to do sweat equity. And some people do a mixture of both which I'd never refuse money or help from anyone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um then the next uh, food activity that we do uh, is the farmer's market. So we took on the Park Heights Community Farmer's Market. It was not started by our organization, at least I don't think. Um, but it is, it's is—it's the oldest, the longest-running midweek market in Baltimore. So it runs on Wednesdays from 9.30 to 2.30 at Pimlico Racetrack. Um, and we, when we brought it on, we were able to start accepting um, SNAP, uh, which is EDT or Independence Car, however people identify with it. Um, WIC and then we do a few different incentive programs which I see Michelle in there. Hey Michelle. She uh, <laughs> she works uh, for Maryland Farmers Market Association which is uh, one of our partners that allows us to offer a match program at market called Maryland Market Money um, which we match up to five dollars for any time anyone uses EBT uh, WIC um, the, or the Farmers Market Nutrition Program which is for seniors or for WIC participants. Um, and that has greatly increased our capacity to get food um, to people. We, probably about 90% of our customers utilize that program at any given time. And uh, it's working because they they come back even when their receipts um, run out. So um, we thank the great folks at Maryland Farmers Market Association for their uh, offering that program. Um, and I see Willie Flowers just walked in. He is the executive director. So my position is, is a joint baby of ours. It was his baby first, and I kind of took it on and, um, and put my spin on it. But it, ha- it was his vision that really brought our food justice program to be, um, and I've just kind of scaled it up from where it started. Um, and so we have the garden, we have the CSA, we have the farmer's market, and then we have our end of the year event titled the Brassica Fest. Um, and so that's our event where uh, we bring all of our food programs together into one happy family, and really show people what we do. Um, in the event, we really use it as an access point to talk about food as medicine. So why do we do what we do? So when I started, I said that we started the the garden was started to fill the nutrient um, need in the community. And so while you or I may think that's an issue, tons of people do not. Um, And so we we bring folks together under the name of the brassica, which is the plant family that includes collards, kale, broccoli, uh, cauliflower, kohlrabi, tatsoi, bok choy, all of the leafy green vegetables that you love already. We use uh, those particular vegetables because they are extremely nutrient-rich and they are close to all of us. We use it as a point to really start to talk about um, how do we eat, what do we eat, why are these things important? How can we prepare these foods better so that we so that they are best for our bodies? Um, and then we, and then we're talking about the gardening. We're talking about we bring the market on site so you can get your Thanksgiving vegetables. It takes place every year the Saturday before Thanksgiving. So if you do nothing, you can come and get your greens and sweet potatoes from us, um, or some gifts. We bring a bazaar out. We also have a uh, cooking contest which allows people from the community to come in and kind of show us what they got in terms of cooking the greens and we judge it and it's a great time. Um, and so it's fun but then we're also using it as a point to really get that as our educational event to really get information out there and connect uh, residents and anyone who comes to resources that can help them scale up whatever they're doing. So. If you know nothing, we have something for you. If you know a little bit, we have something for you. And if you're ready to go full-fledged, uh, we have something for you as well. So this year, and um, I'll wrap up because I see I see Mark getting antsy. <laughs> 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 um, this year, we have broken Brassica Fest uh, into three different sections. So one will be, uh, uh, we're titling it, uh, Creating a Just and Equitable Community. So that'll be our community organizing one-on-one. So as you've heard, I've heard a theme between at least what um, Heber and I have said about um, the community, the need for it, you know. But there's a need for it, but how do you get connected to it? And so you must start with just bringing people together in whatever way that is. So for us, Brassica Fest is one of our uh, larger events where we do bring people together. So we'll be training on um, community organizing to launch our work in other neighborhoods. Um, And then we have the Eat to Live section, so that is all of the health information um so we'll be talking about vegan and we'll be talking about raw and we'll be um you know doing some real demonstrations on different recipes you can do with brassicas there are a lot of workshops for your children so how do you transition them from a junk food diet um, those types of conversations and then the last track at Braska Fest this year will be a home setting track so if you if all of this is commonplace to you and you're ready to take it up to the next level we'll be uh, telling you where to get bees from and how you can keep chickens and what you need to start a garden at home and container gardening and all that stuff that will help your self-sufficiency at home for the folks who are ready to take it there so um, like I said all of our programs all of our information everything that we do is designed with access and need really meeting people where they are, wherever that is, at the base level or higher up, um, and we make it financially accessible, intellectually accessible, and spiritually accessible. All right, Thank you.
0: Thank you, Sasha. I really wasn't getting antsy, it was just my (laughs) leg is hurting. (laughs) Kurt Summers.
3: Thank you for having me uh, here today. Um, uh, It's my pleasure to talk to you a little bit about the work um, that's been going on in Baltimore for the last few years, uh, largely around the ideas of economic inclusion. Um, My name is Kurt Sommer, and I am the director of the Baltimore Integration Partnership. Uh, We are a collective impact initiative um, that works right now with 11 higher educational institutions and hospitals around the ideas of local hiring, uh, local purchasing, uh, and anchor uh, community development. Uh, So our work in food um, um, is focused largely in on looking at the purchasing powers of anchor institutions to support local businesses, which then in turn supports local residents, creating job opportunities, um, helping open up new markets and neighborhoods, helping create um, a a more democratic uh, power uh, for our communities um, by helping folks open the door to wealth and access. Um, Our work is in its fifth year. Our first three years, and this is important, our first three years, uh, we're focused on connecting capital investment and workforce development. Uh, We were fortunate to uh, be awarded capital funds plus grant funds in our first phase of work, and we moved forward through those uh, capital funds. They were debt, capital debt, uh, a range of development projects. um, uh, Chesapeake uh, Building, uh, Lillian Jones um, Apartment Building in East Baltimore. Uh, some of the work that Telesis did in in Greenmount, um, uh, in in New Barclay, excuse me, Um, a range of, um, a a grocery store in East Baltimore, Uh, a range of development projects that our intent was to marry uh, to job opportunities for area residents. Uh, And we were able to do that, and uh, we moved forward uh, uh, about 13 development projects uh, through our lending partner, the Reinvestment Fund, who managed all the capital funds, We are able to um, connect area residents to workforce resources, to jobs, uh, to training programs. Uh, But what we really learned through our work was that there was a lot more people looking for employment than we were able to connect people to jobs with. And, you know, our findings build on the work that the Opportunity Collaborative um, also recently came forward with in finding that 85% of the region's new jobs are being created in the suburbs. And that we all know the transportation challenges that we have as a city in getting area residents plugged into jobs. And so our focus after the first three years was to focus in on job creation. Let's look at our anchor institutions as, uh, as uh, economic development uh, engines. Um, not that they can catalyze everything that Baltimore needs. And let's be clear about that. Mm-hmm. Um, they, are, uh, they have bottom lines. They have limited budgets. They're under pressure uh, to reduce tuition, uh, to cut hospital rates. Um, they are, um, they are uh, ultimately businesses. And so our sense was if we can work with anchor institutions to model these ideas, can we get deeper traction um, by uh, lifting these ideas up for the broader community in Baltimore? Can we get regional employers to think differently about their purchasing and hiring powers to more intentionally leverage their investments to support support city residents? So our work um, in local purchasing uh, has focused in on food um, uh, contracting, uh, minority businesses, um, but food has been the deepest sector of work. Um, we've commissioned research uh, looking at the spending power of institutions, um, looking at a subset of the 11. Uh, we flagged about $56 million in total spending in, in food. Uh, we found that about uh, every $140,000 can support one job. So there's opportunities to say, where is your spend? Can you redirect some of that spend to Baltimore businesses um, and to leverage that investment power to support our communities? Um, we've also found uh, through the work that food is a very um, uh, historical element for Baltimore. It certainly it, it is the meaning of uh, 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 An opportunity for all of us to gather together it is the opportunity to form community work um, It is the opportunity to uh, nourish our, ourselves uh, to, to be spiritual um, around food uh, and to support our our communities in many ways and um, but it also is historical here in Baltimore, with the, the, the head of being at the head of Chesapeake Bay, uh, serving as uh, a former markets for canneries and uh, breweries, and, and all of these industries that have left the city, um, but have, have started to resurge. And we've become a foodie town. We have opportunities to leverage um, some of the great uh, niche businesses that are un- unfolding in our great city, whether it's a Zeke's Coffee, or a Taharqa Brothers, or, or a a City Seeds, a new social enterprise in in East Baltimore, different ways to think about the resources that we have as a city, the assets we have as a city, uh, to point them all towards an an opportunity of growth um, through through catalyzing them with local investment. Uh, So our work has uh, been with 11 institutions. Um, Many of them are moving forward, uh, pilot projects, uh, local initiatives. Um, University of Baltimore here has done um, a a few uh, activities they've moved forward uh, catering um, opportunities in alignment with workforce outcomes Uh, they're sponsoring a a new cafe that is lined up with uh, working with uh, youth that are uh, from um, disadvantaged uh, neighborhoods Uh, University of Maryland Baltimore is working on a merchant access program where they're trying to turn the catering opportunities uh, available in the institution towards businesses in southwest Baltimore Um, by enabling a communication helping businesses access uh, technical assistance um, helping them uh, market their activities uh, towards the the neighborhood Um, Hopkins University is uh, working on uh, through their food service provider um, uh, Bon Appetit um, a social enterprise with humanum called City Seeds uh, Which will be a tenant in the food hub in East Baltimore Uh, Maryland Institute College of the Arts just up the road Uh, has partnered with uh, a range of local businesses to incorporate their businesses into uh, the um, food service that is offered on campus. Um, They've partnered with uh, Prager Creamery out in Belair and Zeke's Coffee to make a Micah brand uh, ice cream uh, that they sell on campus. Um, So there's a lot of different initiatives that these institutions are moving forward. Uh, The most recent um, was announced um, last week. Um, uh, Loyola uh, partnered with United Way. Uh, and the food service provider Parkhurst uh, to leverage the discounted purchasing power the food service provider can get in buying food um, to resell that to local corner stores along the York Road corridor uh, so communities can access fresh food and vegetables. Um, So there's a lot of opportunity to think about uh, Baltimore's institutions, uh, both in spending power, both in hiring power, um, to leverage the needs that we have in our communities to better support our communities.
0: You're listening to a panel I moderated at the second annual Town Creek Foundation stakeholder meeting that focused on the future of food in Baltimore. My guests were the Reverend Dr. Heber Brown, Sasha Jones, and Kurt Sommer. We'll to take a very brief break. Don't go away. There'll be more when we come back. You'll we'll hear the rest of this conversation. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to Soundbites, our weekly look at food, agriculture, and our future here on the Mark Steiner Show. Produced out of your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. Today on the program, we're listening to the first part of a panel that I moderated last week on the future of food in Baltimore, the second annual Town Creek Foundation stakeholder meeting. Town Creek Foundation He's one of the funders of the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites, and they asked us to moderate their keynote panel. The panelists are the Reverend Dr. Heber Brown of the Pleasant Hope Baptist Church, in his capacity as founder of the Black Church Food Security Network, Sasha Jones, who's a food justice consultant and who runs the community farm for the Park Heights Community Health Association, and Kurt Summer, executive director of the Baltimore Integration Partnership. Let's get right back to this conversation. But I, I want to begin, let, let's start this off with disconnect and see if there is a connect and reconnect or create a connect <laughs> but there's clearly a disconnect in Baltimore and I think one of the reasons that the Heights Community Health Group decided to start a farm one of the reasons that you started the church network Hubert uh, Brown was because there is a disconnect so I think I mean before we can talk about how we can get things connected and moving can we spend a little bit of this time talking about why we are where we are? Why you and others, both of you and others, felt that you it was we just can't wait for somebody to come in. We just have to do it because it's not coming in. Let's talk about the disconnect, and then talk about how the connections can happen. So we can just start from here and move. You want to start that off here? Start whoever wants to start. He wants you want to.
2: Okay, uh, I think that's a question that outdates uh, my life, so I can't <laughs> So I, I can't directly speak to why I too, and I'm older <laughs> You know, the full-scale picture of how we are here, but I can speak from my own personal experience of being disenfranch- a disenfranchised youth and uh, waking up and a little bit about my background here, you know, I'm from Baltimore born and raised, bred in all the best schools. I went to Mount Washington and Roland Park and then I went to City and I went off to college and throughout that process um, you know was always involved in some organization here or civically engaged um, in working with the mayor and the city council and all of that and I started to become disenfranchised as a young person um, and really disillusioned, I won't say disenfranchised, but disillusioned about the process, the political process, um, and how I didn't really see the decisions that were being made um, touching the people that needed the most help. Um, and so I made it an interest of mine to really... Uh, and so I was both invested in my government while I was working for this nonprofit um, and seeing more grassroots action and between that, working with the government and working at nonprofits and then some doing some international travel, I decided that grassroots was better and so for me, I just feel like that's the best way that we can reach the people on the ground. Um, now that I'm a little older and I'm not the, 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 I won't call myself an angry kid, but I do believe that we need partnerships. And so that is where, to me, the disconnect has happened, um, that we've a lot, invested a lot of energy into government and in thinking that um, our, it's our government's responsibility to make, to provide a quality of life that we all can participate in and love. And while it is our government's responsibility to uh, provide the framework, we can't leave it to a couple hundred people to really make sure that communities are thriving. And so we need grassroots actions like you know, the um, Hebrews group, like our group, um, to really provide those services that kind of get lost when you're worried about the whole government shunt- shutting down and you may or may not be worried about if this particular block um, is getting access to nutritious food or transportation or housing um, or health care or any of the, the myriad of things that we really uh, have to worry about on a day-to-day basis. And so I think that's what makes Grassroots Actions uh, why so many people are gravitating toward it now because we are full of all of these resources. We have time, we have communication tools, we have crowdfunding, and we have you know social media that shows us what all the cool things that people are doing around the world and we look in our communities and like you know what's happening here I look at my community and I may or, or may not see things that make me smile you know and some things really frustrate me and I think that where we are right now in this place in time is that people can get frustrated and they can see tangible actions that they can take that will change how their life is set up and that may just even trickle out to their family or their neighbor or their community at large so that's why you know, our, our uh, program is set up the way that it is to really uh, provide people with really basic, tangible, scalable skills um, that they can use to make their lives better. And in doing so, we create a whole community of folks that are actively working toward making our lives better. And it sounds really idealistic um, and takes a lot of time, but it does, but so does it takes just amount of, just the same amount of time for governmental changes to go into effect and really to become effective or, you know, realize that they were terrible ideas and we should think of something else.
0: So one thing I want to kind of, uh, Heber and Kurt, mm-hmm. to jump into this thing. And, I, and one of the things, let me just put it on the table without kind of dancing around the issue a little bit, that part of the problem has been in the city of Baltimore and I think around the state of Maryland, around the country, is that whether it, most of the funding these days comes from nonprofits and foundations, does not come from the government, for these kind of programs. They're just mm-hmm. not as they were 30, 40 years ago. And w- we've had this conversation before that one of the reasons that you went off to say, I've got to create this network is because I can't wait around uh, for some foundation to give the black community money. I've just got to go get it done. Mm-hmm. And I'll and I, and I t- t- jump in as well. Why is that disconnect there? And I'd like to explore that because I think that's the heart of the food issue here, the heart of the food and security issue, the heart of what we're facing in this city is that. That's a, that's a big chunk of it, so I'll, I'll get into more of that in a minute, but Heber then please jump in.
1: Sure. Last week I spoke at a very prominent and popular school, uh, the St. Paul School for Boys. I was invited to speak on a panel. The panel was called The State of the Black Community. And I was wondering why I got invited, uh, frankly. <laughs> um, <laughs> Because from what I, the little bit I knew about the school, it was a very prominent, mostly white school out in Baltimore County. And somehow, someway, they found my name and invited me to come and be a part of this conversation, of which I'm very grateful. It was a great event. But after the event, uh, I did some studying about the school and particularly the land on which the school sits. And the land that it sits on is land that was formerly owned by a man named Charles Carroll of Carrollton. One of the most influential men in Maryland, in fact, he was Maryland's first U.S. senator, and he also was a slave owner. He owned a lot of slaves in the state of Maryland. When I was reading a little bit about uh, his words and his writing and the like, um, it said that he voiced opposition to slavery, yet he never freed his slaves. And the Carroll family is still around. In fact, they're a very wealthy family even to this day. And I drove, after I drove away from that school and did that study, I started thinking about all the wealth that the Carroll family has amassed because of their slave-owning ancestor and their entire family, others in that family as well, who owned many slaves. Again, the Carroll family is one of the largest slave-owning families in Maryland. And they're still a very wealthy family. And I started thinking about is some of that wealth tied to my ancestors and the other black people in this city? Now, people today will say, you know, I, never, I never owned any slaves. And if I meet a member of the Carroll family, yeah, if one of y'all here even today, you know, I'm not saying you own nobody. But I am saying a part of the economic privilege and standing you have right now is because your ancestor owned Uh, somebody's uh, ancestors and so uh, why does how does all of that relate to all of this It's because I think in one way you have people who like Charles Carroll of Carrollton have this cerebral disagreement with systemic injustices but it just would cost too much to do something after I got it in my head it would cost too much I'd have to give up too much I'd have to admit and confess too much, and so I would rather just continue to voice disagreement with an unjust, racist, and classist system. Uh, get all the postings on Facebook and Twitter and the likes and retweets, so I'm in the right crowd on the issue. But not surrender, not um, sacrifice too much to really level the playing field. And this is where, and and uh, I sound like a broken record to Mark probably because this is where I am. <laughs> I'm in a position where I believe I cannot and the people I'm blessed to share life with in the black community we cannot wait around for white people to develop the courage to do what's right to address a racist and classist system of economic violence for black people in Baltimore and beyond can't wait I remember I, I have two boys a 7-year-old and a 5-year-old I remember a couple years ago I took my my oldest son to, to uh, pre-K uh, and public school, and the school was going through a lot of challenges, like many public Baltimore City public schools. I went to one of the parent meetings, and they were talking about the changes, the rebuilding of the school, and I was getting excited. I said, "Yes, finally! I mean, because I don't want my child going here, and this school has all these challenges." Um, and the white gentleman in the class at the school at the parent meeting as well said, "Well." calm down the school won't be built in time enough for your older son but maybe by the time your younger son gets here the new school will be in place in essence he was saying sacrifice your oldest son on the altar keep him in the school to go through all these challenges and the one shot he gets in pre-k and elementary and first grade just sacrifice that son but maybe if you stick with it your second son will have a chance That kind of thinking to me says, y'all not ready. And I'm saying white folk, y'all ain't ready. Y'all ain't ready. Not ready yet. And I can speak plain. I mean, I'm I'm just going to, y'all know you're white, you know I'm black. So let's just be plain if we can. (laughs) Let's just be plain if we can. That I don't have the luxury of waiting. We don't have the luxury to wait. When we look at the chronic health issues, when we look at the, the economic challenges, when you look at, drive through some neighborhoods, there's entire blocks that's boarded up in parts of Baltimore, some of you know it. We don't have the luxury to wait. Generations have been lost waiting for the benevolence of other people to do for us. And so yes, the Black Church Food Security Network is an attempt to say we're not waiting for anybody. The longest, institu- longest and most successful and most sustainable institution in the black community is the black church in my view. It has weathered so many storms in this country. It's weathered the shooting of nine people in Bible study a couple of months ago and we're still here. When it comes to economic cooperation, every single Sunday we have offering time. And people put their money together in a basket. And we pay for the things that we want and that we need, and we don't have to check for anybody in order to do what we need to do for our community. We have places where we are safe to hug each other and to cry and to pray for one another and support each other's children through college and to help make sure everybody in the church eats. And in the community, when you come to our church, Maxine's Garden is a garden right next to our church. And for the past four years, we've been growing food and we've put together now four to 500 pounds of produce every single season. But we didn't have to write nobody to give us, please, please give us some land. We used what we had already in our hand. And that's what I'm trying to push more black churches to do that even as we are open to partnership with whomever who truly is interested in a more just society, at the same time, we don't have time to wait for anybody else to make our well-being a priority more than we do ourselves. So I'm excited about this initiative, and yes, I'll continue speaking plain about race and class and history, because if we're really gonna move forward, even on the issues of food justice, we have to face these very weighty and heavy issues as
0: well. So, so, let me, let me bring it back to, to the stakeholders meeting here. And, and Kurt, I'd like to jump in because you've been in and out of the government sectors and nonprofit sectors for a long time. And I think that, that part of it is I really want to wrestle with each other here as we talk about what it means to build an alternative food system, which is what we're talking about a food system in Baltimore that actually works for the majority of people. And we're not just talking about people that, that live at, around Pleasant Hope or go to Pleasant Hope or just the people in parts of Park Heights. We're talking about six figures, hundreds of thousands of people in Baltimore City who face what we're talking about. I just wanted to throw that out there before I jump to Kurt. I think it's really important to, to think about this and visualize it. We're talking about half the city of Baltimore, Remember earlier that we had the slideshow up here we talked about the cost of energy and what it meant for working families and poor working families cost of energy cost of food cost of rent and we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people in this city and in cities like this across America that face that on a daily basis on a daily basis so the disconnect is from your, why why a, why do you think there is a disconnect, and what do we do about bridging and changing that to connect so that the Park Heights Community Health Group or whatever other organizations around don't have to always keep knocking on doors, but the funding comes to people who are actually working in the communities out and inside the communities to get the work done. I think that, that's the disconnect we're talking about.
3: Uh, first of all, um, Herbert's absolutely right. I mean, there is um, a... There is a, a very long and ugly history of structural racism in this city. Uh, I am uh, born and raised a Baltimore City resident. Grew up in northeast Baltimore. Um, When I was in high school in the 90s, um, the city schools were bottoming out. And um, when we look at broken systems that gets us to where we are, um, that is a big fundamental issue um, that has landed us as to where we are today, dealing with um, uh, workarounds to workforce development, uh, massive investments in nonprofit organizations to fund workforce uh, development programs. Um, mm-hmm. We have a number of broken systems in this city that have to be turned on um, for us to be working in the right direction together as a city. And um, they are not just limited to workforce, we see the same challenges in small business development as we work with local businesses we're trying to get connected with anchor institutions the business capacity is very weak it's very limited Um, there is a a fragmentation of sources and resources out there loan programs grant programs folks don't know where to turn to Um, there are a lot of challenges in aligning people in need to the resources that are available in Baltimore and that I think the first Step that we as a city need to keep doing is keep talking about the issues and the needs, and starting to align those systems and, and issues to those needs, uh, because there is a massive disconnect between uh, areas and community and, and what resources are available. Uh, I mean, I, mean I, I would like
0: people to start participating in this because what I want to uh, pursue here. I was thinking about two very quick things. One is a short story, and then what something Stuart said this morning as he welcomed us here. Um, to kind of wrestle with. I mean, A, I, I was thinking about these two places I know in Baltimore. I will not say where they are, because they may be breaking somebody's law doing what they're doing, and I wouldn't get them in trouble because they're feeding people. But there are two places I know in Baltimore City, one on one side of town, one on the other, where men and women came together to build their own hydroponic garden and also raise fish, tilapia, to feed the community. And that'd be breaking some zoning laws, is why I'm not saying where they are. Um, I really don't care about the zoning laws because they're feeding the people. And so so I say that because one of the things that Stuart talked about this morning was how we move to a transformative form of work. How do we get there? And how do we make that part of the body politics and not a conversation that sits out here about the Pope or Stuart Clark talking about transformative work, but making that at the heart of what we do. And so I want us wrestling on the panel, but you please come in and wrestle with this. As people who help run nonprofits, some other foundations are here as well who have been in this world a long time. How do we change the dynamic? So it's not Hebrew Brown alone and other people feeding people in Sasha. It's a much larger process. How do we get there? I want you to wrestle today with the transformative aspects of how we get there as a nonprofit world representing our state and city. How do we get there? We then turn to the audience for questions and the audience was made up of environmentally-minded and food-justice-oriented nonprofits, foundations, and community activists. I'm going to summarize our audience questions. The first question came from a woman who spoke about how she realized her privilege in the world and the inequality in our systems, first through her doing clean energy work in our communities. She commented that all the work must start by acknowledging our privileges by those who are privileged and telling the important stories that are not always heard. was a program that... The place that Heber met the gentleman and people he was talking about earlier was at Heber's church. It was part of a series we did with the Center for the Livable Futures Food and Faith Project, where we went from religious institution to religious institution and held these town meetings that began to bring people from all kinds of communities, all walks of life, black and white and Latino and Asian and, and, and middle class and poor people into the room to wrestle with this together. That's why I'm asking... You have to think about what these solutions are, both in terms of funding and both in terms of how we get there so it becomes transformative. So it's a new force that we have in the city. Not, you know, Just not throwing out blame and say, oh, you're a terrible person. What do we do to change it? That's where I am. <laughs> so if anybody want to jump in, please jump in. Then we'll go to the next person in the audience. Anybody want to?
1: I'm just curious for nonprofit leaders who are here, and I don't have an answer. I just want to throw it out for our collective consideration. Um, I'm curious about how our nonprofit community um, can make adjustments um, or even a change in philosophy so that the work that we're doing actually challenges the social arrangement that keeps the needy folk needy. So in other words, How, as nonprofit leaders, can our work be constructed in such a way that it, in a very real sense, can lead to our non-existence? Or is our work in some way dependent, in what ways is our work dependent on um, unjust, imbalanced set of social arrangements in order to perpetuate and continue the organization itself? Because I believe that if non-profit leaders who are here, and I don't know most of y'all, so it's not personal, but I'm just asking you to consider, I'm interested in listening, but you probably started what you started and got into the line of work that you got into because something really grabbed at your heart to say, this is a wrong that needs to be righted, right? But I would imagine that over time, deadlines, paperwork, meetings, here, there, and everywhere, you could possibly forget why you started the work. And so I'm curious, is there a way to tap into perhaps where, why and where you started and the ways in which our nonprofit work can be aligned in such a way to truly make us not needed it anymore?
0: It's just a question. <laughs> no, 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 that was good. That was really important. The next audience member to speak was Josh Tolkien from the Maryland Sierra Club, who stressed the importance of community-based research he said the Sierra Club has had more successes when they have emphasized individual transformative experiences as part of their work. He also highlighted the challenging balance between long-term policy-oriented goals and immediate community-level action and change. How can organizations like Sierra Club and others organize around and build on that more was his question. Picking up on the thread of where organizations can connect with communities, Dina Lieben, who is executive director of Future Harvest Casa, added that a starting place is identifying shared passions like farming, noting that Sasha Jones and other young black farmers went through the Future Harvest CASA's Young Farmer Training Program and developed their work from there to the future and back to the communities. Lynn Heller from the ABLE Foundation made a comment from the audience as well. She said her foundation is focused on urban poverty, and she picked up on the thread of transformative thinking and action and bridging the divide between neighborhood and systemic problems. Given that the audience was made up of environmentalists environmental nonprofits focused on the bigger picture, long-term outcomes and changes, it lends itself to more transformative and less transactional work. She shared that the ABLE Foundation, which tries to support the work at the grassroots level, has struggled to find many grassroots community-based organizations they could fund, as well as Baltimore City-focused environmental organizations that are not led by white environmentalists. How, she wondered, would the panelists recommend that organizations try to bridge the divide between these communities so more funding could take place?
1: Let me, let me throw something in, and Sasha and Willie, y'all, yeah. y'all got
0: stuff to add. Um, for one, I would,
1: I would raise the issue of accountability and would ask for whatever foundation or organization, who are you, who are you accountable to? Who do you understand yourselves to be accountable to? And where are, where are the avenues for you to um, not just have focus groups with people who are directly affected, right? But where are the ways, where, where is it in your organization that people who are directly affected have uh, an influential and deciding voice on the work that's going to go on in their neighborhood or in their community? Um, and so I would raise that issue as one, as an idea, in terms of accountability. Who are you accountable to? And can we, can we cease with, you know, bringing in whatever the profile is that we think will help us get the next, you know, monies or prestige, or whatever. Can we cease with bringing in the poor, black, at-risk youth? And I wrote a, a poem about an ode to at-risk youth because I think they helped drive the economy in Baltimore in a very real way, in an ugly way too, but can, can we cease with um, bringing them in for the pictures, the photo ops, you know, for, for, you know, those type of ways and really say, okay, here's our board and we're here to listen to the lived experiences that you're having in your community and before we set the agenda for what we think we're going to do for the year we want you to help give us the framework for what we need to be thinking about because clearly we're 10,000 20,000 feet in the air but you're right there living in the midst of it I would, I would raise that as a, one of the things that I'm, there's many other things but that's one I would raise
0: as a question that was the first part of a panel I moderated earlier this week on the future of food in Baltimore featuring Sasha Jones the Reverend Dr. Eber Brown and Kurt Summer. we will hear the rest of their conversation on our next episode of SoundBites right here on your dial next week Please send me your thoughts about what you thought about the first part of our conversation. To talk at steinershow.org. And thank you so much for joining us. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media, it's made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Stephanie Mavronis and Mark Gunnery. Our engineers, Andre Melton. Our engineer at Del Marvel Public Radio is Christopher Rank. Our interns are Sienna Greaves, Monifa Wilson, and Calvin Perry. Our theme music is by War Matthews of Clean Cuts. Podcast the Mark Steiner show and share it with your friends, visit us on the web at Steinershow.org, or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. You can also learn more about soundbites and listen to our past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA88.9FM, the Voice of the Community, and WSDL90.7 FM Del Marvel Public Radio. I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.